0: We found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible, and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it, but God's word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire, still in this
1: hour, Hello, friends. Welcome to the Pod King Podcast. I'm your co-host Donald King, and I'm the host of the Pod King Podcast Bible Study, Donnie King. Monday, January the twenty fourth, episode number forty three. The blood takes away sin. Hebrews nine nineteen through twenty eight. On this podcast. We studied the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last episode, which was a special episode, we finished our study on the attributes of God. Brother Chris went over the moral attributes, while Brother Donnie went over the divine attributes. We got a sampling of the many attributes of God, while these brothers covered the most prominent ones. In today's episode, we'll be looking at how Moses and Aaron conducted the sacrifice and all of the elements that went with it. The main focus of the writer turns to the forgiveness of sin and the power within the blood. He speaks of better sacrifices and how the high priest had to use the blood of animals. Then he contrasts how Jesus used his own blood to redeem us. We see how it is appointed unto man once to die, and then after this, the judgment. Now, for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to our host of the
2: Pod King podcast, our pastor, Brother Donnie King. We want to thank you for listening in today, and we're hoping to get into some depths of the greatness of the book of Hebrews right here. This is some of the most prime scriptures found within the whole book of Hebrews. Amen. All right, we're going to look at verses 19 and 20, starting off, and we're going to look at them together. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Now the writer is rehearsing the set protocol that Moses and the priest had to go through in their ceremonial duties. First off, Moses would read every precept and command of God to the people, thus reminding them of their sinfulness. And we find this in Exodus 24 and 7. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. He would then take the blood of calves and goats, along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and he would dedicate the people. He did this in order to set in effect the covenant promises. We see the first beginnings of this in Exodus 12 and 22. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Then we see it furthered in Exodus 24 and 8. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Leviticus chapter 14 improves upon this and tells us even more. Leviticus 14 and 4. Then shall the priest command to take for him that is to be cleansed two birds alive and clean and cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop. Verse 6 and 7. As for the living bird, he shall take it and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and shall dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. Verse 49 through 51 finishes up this thought. And he shall take to cleanse the house two birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet, and hyssop. And he shall kill the one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. And he shall take the cedar wood, and the hyssop, and the scarlet, and the living bird." and dip them in the blood of the slain bird and in the running water and sprinkle the house seven times. Moses would sprinkle the book and all of the people with the blood. He would then cleanse them with the water and the scarlet wool and the hyssop. He would then declare that this was the blood of the Testament or the binding covenant that God was binding them with, that God, as it says, enjoined them to. This was also what Jesus did on the night of the Last Supper, according to Matthew 26 and 28. He says, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, most likely everyone listening in will understand the symbolism that's represented here. But please allow me to expound on these items briefly. First, there had to be the death of an animal for without the shedding of its blood, there was no remission for sin. The shedding of blood is a necessity for salvation. Then there was the water, which represents cleansing and baptism. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that man was born through the water and the spirit. Let me read that to you. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. What many people fail to realize is that the water and the blood are an important thing here. They are important items in what we're looking at. It takes the water and the blood. Jesus told Nicodemus to be born again. You've got to go through the water and the blood. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, we're reminded of the same thing all over again. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. Listen to how important this is. Verse 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. He sums it all up in verse 8 by saying, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. What many people fail to miss in this is that without the water and without the blood, the sacrifice is not complete. So when Jesus was on the cross in John 19, when the soldier came by and he stuck the spear in his side, the Bible says, forthwith came there out blood and water. It takes the water and the blood. Most people understand the blood part, but they fail to remember or recognize the water part. And a lot of people know that hyssop was used to dip into the blood, and it became the applicator of the blood. They would dip the hyssop in it, and they would shake it at the people, and it would sprinkle them with the blood. Hyssop is known for its purifying power, so that symbolizes the purifying power within the blood. A lot of people call it sanctification, and I believe that it is a sanctifier. It is shed. The blood was shed to save It was shed to heal. It was shed to cleanse sinners from all of their sins and their iniquities and even their afflictions. One of the things that I think many of us tend to overlook about all of this is the scarlet wool. What did any of this have to do with all of these other items? First, I think you must ask yourself, what is wool? Well, we know it's the hair of a sheep or of a lamb. Well, why did the wool have to be scarlet colored? Well, it was only colored scarlet by dipping it in blood. Scarlet is the color of blood. Now, I believe we should see some significance of the scarlet wool in this procedure now. It was a type and a shadow of Jesus, the Lamb of God, and his blood being shed. This is true even to the point where his hair is mentioned in the scripture. They drove the crown of thorns into the brow of our Savior. We're told in the book of Revelation when John was speaking about the Christ that he saw, (laughs) he said Jesus had hair white like wool. And it wasn't by accident that he said it looked like wool. He is the Lamb of God. His hair was white. When his brow was pierced by the thorns and the blood began to come out of his head, it colored the hair of Christ, and it was scarlet wool. The blood dripped down to the hairs of his precious body, and that pouring forth of that blood was shed from the many wounds that he received at the hand of sinful men, and it was shed for sinful men. Now, the word we see here at the end of the verse as enjoined is the Greek diakiluio. Diakiluio means to order or make a command. This makes these actions necessary. It was enjoined unto them. It was commanded them. They were given an order. So this gives us the full reason why the writer spoke of this procedure as a necessity in the prior verses. We are ordered or commanded to approach God in this way, following all of these things. Through Christ, this is how we approach God today. Hebrews 9 and 21 says, moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Proof of this sprinkling of the tabernacle and of all the vessels of ministry is found in Exodus 24 and 6, 29 and 12, 29 and 36, Leviticus 8 and 15 through 19, Leviticus 16 and 14 through 19, 2 Chronicles 29 and 22. I'll read you some of those verses. Exodus 24 and 6 says, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Exodus 29 and 12, And thou shalt take the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all of the blood beside the bottom of the altar. Exodus 29 and 36 says, And thou shalt offer every day a bullock for a sin offering for atonement, and thou shalt cleanse the altar when thou hast made an atonement for it, and thou shalt anoint it to sanctify it you get the idea of what's going on Leviticus tells some of the same passages of what they sanctified what they cleansed and then in second chronicles 29 and 22 so they killed the bullocks and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar likewise when they had killed the rams they sprinkled the blood upon the altar they killed also the lambs and they sprinkled the blood upon the altar the blood had to be shed the blood was to be at the altar Is it just by coincidence that for us to get the application of the blood upon our souls that we must go to an altar of prayer somewhere? I believe that's the plan of God, and it was from the very beginning. And this is rather fascinating to me to know that even the vessels that they did the service with had to be cleansed and sanctified in order for them to be used. Even the tabernacle itself had to be cleansed by the blood. It received the sprinkling, the application of the blood, all the way down to the holy place. These things had to be purified with blood. The holiest place on earth had to be cleansed before the presence of God, who is so pure, so holy, could come into it. This ought to give us an idea of how pure and holy we should live. This should also show us how pure Christ has made us who have been sinful ever since our birth. We are sinful by nature, and so he changes all of that when he comes into our life. Can you imagine how holy heaven must be? This shows us why sin cannot enter into God's good heaven. He is too holy for sin to enter into his presence. Think about dwelling in the presence of this holy God for all of eternity This is why we need every area of our heart cleansed from all sin and unrighteousness. It's this thinking that leads us into the next verse, Hebrews 9 and 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, the writer, when he quotes this, he's taking us all the way back to Leviticus 17 and 11, where we're told the life of the flesh is in the blood. Let me read this to you. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. We're told the blood's given to make an atonement upon the altar for us. The blood is what makes an atonement for our souls. The writer said almost all things according to the law are purged with blood. This means that there's a few instances that other things were cleansed by something other than blood, and we just saw that a while ago. The water, the hyssop, things were cleansed at the laver through the water, through the hyssop, the sprinkling of the blood. That hyssop was a purifier. Some things were purged by many different things, but you see the idea. Almost all things had blood included in the purging process. That's not to say that anybody can be redeemed without the blood because it is the blood that atones for our souls. There should be no mistaking that. Nobody should be able to hear that and say, oh, well, somebody could be redeemed by something else. You might cleanse the outer man with water. You may go get baptized, but if you've never repented of your sins, you've never had the blood applied to your heart, you are not saved. It takes the blood of Jesus to cleanse the inner man which will help the outer man. We don't need to skip over the part where he says that there's no remission without the shedding of blood. I know there's a lot of people today saying that it's too bloody, too gory of a gospel for them. They think that we need to have a more civilized gospel. Well, can I tell you something? If you take the blood out of the gospel, you no longer have a gospel. No one has ever been forgiven of their sins without a blood sacrifice making atonement for them. No one has ever been born again without accepting Jesus' blood as a payment for their sin. So this leads us into chapter 9, verse 23. It was therefore necessary that, that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The writer's argument is that it was necessary for the things on earth to be purified with things from the heavens. I seem to glean a little of what Jesus was teaching the disciples in the Lord's Prayer right here especially from the part where he said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said that the heavenly things are purified with better sacrifices than these earthly things. As holy as man tries to act at times, and even as holy as the high priest tried to be and tried to live, they could only sanctify themselves with something here on earth. That's nothing to be compared with the true holiness of God and the heavenly dwelling that we're hoping to go to. This also echoes Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he is about to make the tabernacle for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shewed thee in the mount. God showed Moses the pattern of the way things should have been while he was on Mount Sinai, and he gave him a pattern of the way things are in the heavenlies. I believe the next verse explains why the writer is making this point valid. Hebrews 9 and 24 says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus didn't just go into the most holy place of the temple and offer the blood of the sacrifice after his death and resurrection. As a matter of fact, we don't read of him ever going back to the temple or the tabernacle at all. So if he did this in the temple or the holy place, it had to be in heaven. We know that Jesus has passed into the heavens, as Hebrews 4 and 14 says. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. He didn't just go through the types and shadows. He went to the most holy place known. He entered into heaven where the Father himself dwells. He appeared before God, not on his own behalf, but he did it for us, as Paul tells us in Romans 8 and 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Jesus is in the presence of God today, and he is there to act as our high priest. He is there to make intercession for us through that precious blood he shed upon the cross. The Greek word for presence here is an interesting word. is prosopon. Prosopon literally means the face of someone. Jesus is standing face-to-face with the Father, interceding on our behalf. Right now, he's doing the work of an advocate. He's doing the work of a mediator. He's doing the work of a high priest for all of us who have sinned and transgressed against the laws of the Almighty God. Hebrews 9 and 25 and 26, I'm going to read those together. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here the writer exposes the utter ridiculousness of not believing in the one-time work of atonement that Christ procured for us. Jesus didn't come with the blood of another animal. Jesus didn't come with the blood of another person. He came and he offered his own blood and he sealed the sacrificial system forever. He also showcases how much better the sacrifice of Christ is more than all the others. The writer of Hebrews is so fond of doing this anyway, and he's wanting us to think, how could one man die every year for the sins of the people? That may sound ridiculous to even consider, but this is the point the writer made. One man couldn't do that. No man could do that. But we know one that did. The high priest had to enter into the holy place every year with the blood of slain animals. This kept a continuous cycle going that never brought the people any closer to God. Now, can I say something here? If Jesus were only a good man or a prophet, this would cause multiple problems with the whole system from right here. For number one, he would not have been sinless. As good a man as John the Baptist was, he had sinned. As great a man as the apostle Paul was, he had sinned. Jesus is the only man who lived without sin while here on this earth. If he was not sinless, he could not be our eternal high priest. But because he was sinless and is sinless, he is our eternal high priest. How could Jesus have suffered and died every year since the beginning of the world? He couldn't. There's no, it'd be ridiculous to consider that and to even think that he would do that. This is what would have had to taken place to take care of sins for all time is for an earthly high priest to live forever, but yet die every year. It cannot be done. You might think that I'm making some very illogical statements here, but isn't that what the writer's implying? Jesus took care of it all at once when he came and allowed himself to become the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus only had to die once, not many times. And this gives us the perfect segue into the next two verses, and I want to look at them together. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I feel verse 27 is one of those verses that is taken out of context by nearly everyone who quotes it. The writer has built his case for Jesus being a one-time sacrifice and only having to die once. He's contrasting this with being a sacrifice offered every year by a high priest who will die. The point that he's making is every human is appointed by God to be born, and then there's also an appointment to face at death. We're all appointed unto death but once. This is why the previous priestly system could do us no good at all. After our death comes the judgment, and that's where we'll stand before the Lord ourselves. As the writer just told us, Jesus is standing in the presence of God right before his face. We, too, shall all stand before God. We're going to stand before him when this life is over. But the one who went before us did what we cannot do. He has boldly stood in the presence of the Father, and he has talked with him. He has mediated with him. He has advocated with him. He has done the work of a high priest that we could not do for ourselves. Everyone who is born has an appointment to keep here on earth, which is death. And then they have another appointment to keep in heaven, and that's at the judgment. The writer advances with this thought into verse 22, and he reminds us that Christ was offered once, again, keeping with this thought from verse 27, and he pointed out that Jesus died as all men do. But since he was no ordinary man, His death wasn't an ordinary death either. As a matter of fact, after he died, he came back to life, and he lives again. And not only does he live again, he lives forever. He died as a sacrifice, offering himself for the sins of many, the writer said, bearing those sins unto the cross. Let me read you a few passages that deal with this. 1 Peter 2 and 24 says, Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Matthew 20 and 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The writer gives us a much-needed hope by telling us that if we're looking for him, He will appear a second time. And when he appears, the Bible said it's going to be without sin, just like he came the first time. Let me remind you of what he said in Hebrews 4 and 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He came the first time without sin. He's coming the second time without sin. He changes not. The writer will tell us that again in Hebrews 13 and 8, where it says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. The second time he's coming will be unto salvation, the writer said. Now, this should certainly spur us to anxiously await his coming, knowing that he's coming back for those who are looking for his return. It is they who endure to the end that shall be saved. This ties in with what the writer's been telling us all along. When Jesus returns at the end, Those who have endured in their waiting and looking for him shall be saved. I want to explain a little bit about what it means when it says he's coming without sin under salvation. I want to look at it in its contextual application, the meaning that the writer was trying to convey to us. He was speaking to Jews who would have known this process, but I want to remind you of what he's talking about. In Zechariah chapter 3, we see Joshua the high priest and the day of atonement is in progress. A week before the Day of Atonement, the priest would be put into seclusion. He'd be completely alone, around no one. The night before, he would stay awake all night in prayer and studying the Scriptures. When the day was come, he would come out of seclusion and openly show himself. He would then cleanse himself. He would dress in pure white linen, and then he would offer a sacrifice for his sins. He would then go. He would change his clothes again, wash himself, dress in pure white linen and he would come and offer a sacrifice for the priest who would do in the sacrifices for the people. He would then repeat this process all over again, washing himself, changing clothes and then come in and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people, the nation of Israel. He did all of this publicly, right in front of everyone behind a thin screen that they would have erected. This was so there would be no mistakes during all of this and so all the people of Israel could be watching. Their sins were on the line here. The priest messed up. It's their sins and their souls that's that's standing in jeopardy. The temple would be full of people. Those in attendance would be watching close at what he did. The people didn't want anything to mess up this process, for it was their sins on the line. But in Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua's garments were covered with excrement. They were totally defiled. God was giving Zechariah, the prophet, a vision of what man is before a holy God. Man is defiled. Man's righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. So he began to tell us about Jesus, this branch who had come, and he'd take our sins away in one day. Let me read you some of these verses found in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4, and then verses 8 and 9. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Is that not what he did for us? When we came to him lost, he took away our filthy garments from us when we repented, and he caused our iniquity to pass from us, and he's clothed us with a change of raiment. We have now put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to verses 8 and 9. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the grave, and thereof saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. We all know that the iniquity of the land was removed in one day. It was on the day that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all humanity. God was making it known. in one day, all of this ritualistic sacrifices would be over. All the offerings would be ended and everything would be fulfilled. One day, another Joshua, another Yeshua, another Hosea, another Jesus. All of these are the same in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. One day, he would come and set everything right. In the life of Christ, one week beforehand, he began to prepare for the greatest day of atonement the world had ever known. He went into seclusion. For a week, he was not hardly seen by anyone. He was not openly ministering among the public anymore, just like the high priest would do. The night before his crucifixion, he was awake, sleeping none. Remember him in the garden? He prayed all night. He felt all alone. Even though he had three disciples with him, he was still all alone. And even was really all alone because they all forsook him and fled when the enemies came in. He was stripped of his garments, just like Joshua, the high priest, was. And then he was bathed. You say, I don't believe that. He was, but it was in human spit. They bathed him with their spit. He was clothed with our sins, according to 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. He was made to be sin, who knew no sin. I believe he did all of this so Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8 could be so. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. I want you to think about this. Jesus was stripped of His garments that we could put on the garments of righteousness. He went through the unrighteousness that we might be made righteous. The Bible said, "Let us be glad and rejoice." His wife's ready. How did his bride get ready? He gave them his garment of righteousness. We're arrayed in fine linen. It's clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is our righteousness. If you have the blood applied to you today, you have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb, and you have the righteousness of God within you. There's no sense to have your head hanging down. We have something to look up today for our redemption draweth nigh. No, don't raise your head in a haughty spirit and a pious attitude and say, well, thank God I'm not like those sinners. But we ought to be thankful that we have been washed in the blood. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Have you been washed in the blood of the lamb? I'm thankful today he did what he did so we could have what we have.
1: Great teaching today, Brother Donnie. It took the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from our sin when nothing else would do. I'm thankful for the Lord today. Got a question sent in here. Are you ready for that? Yes, sir. Let's go with it. Why does it seem that wicked people tend to be very religious?
2: (laughs) This has been the custom for years and years and years. Matter of fact, some of the most wicked people in the Old Testament were very religious people. Think about the people who killed their children and burnt them alive. They would throw them into the arms of their own God that they would set on fire. And as it, it was burning, they would throw their child into the belly of Molech and Chemosh and all of those false gods. So they were religious. They were so religious, they offered their child unto God. They were very religious in the Old Testament as well. They had cult prostitutes. And this went into Jesus's day in Paul's time. When they're at Corinth, some of the churches in the area, you could visit them, and that's where the prostitutes were. They were cult prostitutes, but you went in and you worshiped your God through those things. Now, think about how wicked and vile that is. They were very religious, but they were very wicked as well. So I believe I know exactly what the questioner is talking about. I know our day is somewhat different. I won't say it's a whole lot different, but it's somewhat different than it was back then. But I've also myself noticed that some of the most wicked and vile people today seem to be very religious people. Yeah, you're right. First off, I want to establish a fact that some people may not have thought of before. Everybody normally acts like their father, no matter who that might be. Jesus spoke of the devil and said he was a liar and he was a murderer, and he said that he was that from the beginning. Anybody that is like their father and their father is the devil will be a liar and a murderer as well. The devil was in heaven from the time he was created until he sinned and then was cast out. The devil still yet wants to feel religious. The devil still wants to depict himself as a good alternative to God. The Bible said that he, he can even transform himself into an angel of light, a minister of righteousness. In doing this, his desire was to ascend above the throne when he was in heaven. That thought is still real in his mind, and even though he knows there's no possibility of it happening, he still has that desire. People are swayed by the religious spirit of the devil. It makes them feel better about themselves. The businessman who cheats people out of money, he feels better when he gives some of that money to charity. The woman who's living like Jezebel feels better about herself when she tells someone, I'm going to be praying for you. Now, the Muslims believe they're doing God a service when they kill the infidels. And their term of infidel means basically any American, but especially a Christian or a Jew. The Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Church, we found out just recently, has allowed their priests and their ministers to molest numerous altar boys and children in their Sunday school classes, but they really feel good about themselves because they stand against gay marriage. Now, wait a minute. A man molested a little boy, but they taught against gay marriage. But it makes perfect sense to them. They, they think it makes great sense. The bottom line is there's a spirit of deception straight from the pits of hell that gets a hold of these people. I want to present you with a scripture that I believe speaks to this issue from 2 Timothy 3 and 5. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. This verse includes every walk of life, every group. They all have a form of godliness. Every religious group, even holiness people, we have a form of godliness. Does your form have any power to it is the question. Most people have a form of godliness, but many of them deny the power thereof as well. The Bible says from such turn away. The devil knows if he can deceive people into thinking that as long as their good outweighs their bad, they're in pretty good shape. The devil wants others to believe that there's a little bit of good in everybody, so eventually everyone will go to heaven somehow. That's not scriptural, but a lot of people believe that. The devil also wants to deceive those people who live wickedly. He wants to deceive people, and those that we see live wickedly, but hear them speak religiously. We're seeing them deceived to the point where they can believe that anybody can live any way they want to and make it to heaven, that God's just going to open up the door. This is where the teaching of purgatory came from. People did not want to believe that God would send anyone to hell. So they began to say, well, there's got to be an in-between place because if they were too wicked to go to heaven, but too good to go to hell, the Bible speaks of man being lost or saved. This is the way God looks at people. Do you have the blood applied or do you not? And that's exactly what we've been looking at in this study today. Good answer
1: today. Thank you, whoever sent this question in today. Remember, friends, if you have a Bible question that you won't answer, drop us an email at DKMinistries1977 at yahoo.com. That's DKMinistries1977 at yahoo.com. If you have a comment about our podcast, we welcome your input. We hope. You have enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. We want
2: to thank you for tuning in, and we'll catch you on next time. God bless.
0: I want to lay down weights that beset me So I can keep my soul feeling free I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord For the gospel's sake where i go you've already been there cause i'm walking in jesus name well i'm walking in jesus name i'm going where he bit to go i'm dressing and talking like he wants me to he's a keeper of my soul i have learned to lean on jesus and cast on him my ever concern I'm looking for a home in glory